Hi, I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the Executive Director of The Hub. Welcome to In Conversation with Amanda Lang. On this program, you'll hear journalist and best-selling author Amanda Lang's analysis of contemporary events, issues, and ideas exclusively for The Hub. In Conversation with Amanda Lang is hosted by The Hub's editor-at-large, Sean Spear. If you're enjoying this program, please visit our website at www.thehub.ca for all kinds of great thinking and insights into the big issues and ideas driving the public conversation. The Hub's podcasts featuring Amanda Lang are generously supported by the Linda Frum and Howard Sokolowski Charitable Foundation. Welcome to Hub Dialogues. I'm your host, Sean Spear, editor-at-large at The Hub. I'm glad to be back in conversation with Amanda Lang for another installment of our bi-weekly video and podcast series on the key issues concerning Canadian business, economics, and public policy. In today's conversation, we'll discuss new Statistics Canada data that shows millennials have overtaken baby boomers as the country's largest age group and its economic and political implications. We'll also cover the Trudeau government's agreement with the NDP on new pharmacare legislation and what it may mean in the short and long term for Canadians' access to pharmaceutical drugs. Amanda, thanks as always for joining us. Hi, Sean. Well, my age group has finally done it. Statistics Canada reported late last week that millennials now outnumber boomers, which ends the latter's 65-year reign as the country's largest age cohort. Amanda, what's your initial reaction to the news? Well, my initial reaction, and I'm just reliving it here, uh, is that poor old Gen X, which is me, just gets completely ignored in the whole thing. Start to finish, we are irrelevant. Congratulations for reminding me of that. It, you know, we, of course, we pay attention to these these cohorts because the boomers were so influential, uh, yes. because it, it did have a dramatic impact on our economy on uh, the types of spending patterns and therefore the types of policies. And I guess my first reaction is that's probably not going to change. Um, they're still with us, uh, even though they're slightly outnumbered. And of course, thanks to um, the way you know death works, they will reduce in number every year. Uh, however, their influence politically will stay with us. So will there be a sudden shift? No. But I do think really interesting things are going on here. And not least, as we as everybody will note, the the increase in the size of that millennial cohort was almost entirely driven by immigration and non-permanent residents. So that struck me as something of a pyramid scheme, because, of course, we need the younger generations mm. to be supporting that older one. But now we've created a sort of a secondary bulge in the millennial group and poor old Alpha, which is the, the cohort born between 2013 and now, doesn't really have a shot. There are as many alphas born in total as immigrants last year. So that's that's it's going to be tough to keep up when you're trying to support those in retirement. Wow. Just a ton of insight there that we'll try to unpack over the course of our, our conversation. But I want to stay on your observation about immigration and the effect that it's having, not just on the composition of the different age groups, but actually Canada's overall age. It's the mm -hmm. first time, Amanda, that the country's average age has fallen year over year since 1958. As you mentioned, there's a lot of talk about the political implications of these trends. Uh, I wrote over the weekend, for instance, about generational change in our politics. But I wonder what the business consequences might be. Will we start to see notable changes in advertising or consumption patterns or other aspects of business life? How will the boomer dominance decline affect things, if at all, in, in your mind? 
It seems, I mean, it seems reasonable to expect that it will and it should, uh, because, of course, those are the forces you're talking about. They're very flexible and responsive, and they absolutely should respond to whatever the existing kind of demographic is. One of the biggest factors, of course, about aging is that we do change our consumption patterns. And so the implications for the economy, for the housing market, for the job market, those are all real. Now, they're not quite what comes out of the textbooks, as we know, because we are uh, not just living longer, but working longer. Lord knows, staying in our homes longer. I mean, one of the reasons, of course, younger people can't get their hands on those single family homes is their parents are still in them and, and won't get out because they, they don't want to. They don't have to. Uh, and so we are seeing sort of changes in what we would have considered, I think, a generation ago to be the norm around this. One thing I will say on the age thing, you probably came across this, but the Fraser Institute actually crunched the numbers on one point on what happens as your population ages. And their claim is that for every 10% increase in the size of the population over 65, by which they mean retirement age, presumably, your GDP growth reduces by 0.23%. That's material. That I mean, 0.23% is a lot in terms of reduction in growth rate over time. And so the question is, are we... Was this the genius of the McKinsey immigration plan that Canada is now living out? Are we offsetting that by bringing in 41-year-olds? And that that's great. That's very good news for us. The only thing I will, I will say is, of course, we're bringing them in, but we're bringing them into a slow-growth, poor-productivity environment. Uh, so we might not be getting the benefits that we should be getting, but at least it shows you that the rationale for bringing in younger immigrants, it, does, it doesn't just solve immediate problems in the economy. It does solve a longer-term problem. Yeah, that's a, a great observation. For listeners and viewers who are interested in immigration and how it interacts with some of the issues that Amanda and I are talking about, I'd encourage you to check out a, a recent episode of Hub Dialogues, where I spoke to Lisa Luan, the CEO of the Century Initiative, which, of course, has championed a, a large increase in our immigration with the goal of ultimately reaching 100 million Canadians by 2100. Amanda, if it's okay with you, I'd like to stay for a moment on the kind of cultural and business dynamics, because it just interests me so much, in large part because of something you said earlier, which is that we really have been living in an economy conceived of and de designed for baby boomers for a long, long time. And that makes good sense. At their peak, boomers represented 40% of the entire population. Millennials, by contrast, are expected to peak out at about 23%. Is one possible consequence that no particular age group has such a cultural and economic dominance on the society as the boomers had, that in a way, this trend is consistent with a broader shift towards fragmentation in movies, music, television, news and information, and various other parts of modern life? And if so, is that a good thing or a bad thing? Interesting. I'm not sure I can answer that last one. It'll play out as it plays out. I think you're probably right in the sense that, yeah, now that 23% is is where they'll stay and actually gradually decline. Uh, and they, will they have the influence? The other trend, of course, that's new is we have never seen this number of generations occupying the economy slash workforce at the same time. So those yes. boomers actually have to be responsive to the millennials. And by the way, don't forget old Gen Z, uh, which is <laughs> we are apparently we're just skipping over Gen X. So we all continue to do it. But there's Gen <laughs> Z coming up in the bottom, which, which has, have unique characteristics of their own. And so I think... The real actual beauty of this is it, it used to, I think, economically speaking, it sort of felt a bit like a baton pass, right? Now the boomers will sort of shape 
our public policy and our, you know, the advertising market and what, you know, what products we'll, we'll see and consume. Uh, and yes, will there be more of a mixture now? I think it stands to reason that there will. I think that's very healthy. It may well be, you know, in sort of a, a cliche way that they, these, these younger cohorts will kind of keep that older generation young and keep them modernizing and evolving in a way that, that maybe their parents or grandparents wouldn't have, which is great for them, great for the economy. I'll go back to all of this would be better if we had a, a better landscape to sit in. In other words, if we were, if our if our supporting policies were more uh, productivity enhancing, I think this would be more exciting. But either way, it's exciting socially. I think we are seeing, we're already seeing it. Work from home is a very much younger cohort driven um, exercise. We ignore that at our peril, and I think it's a good thing, right? We most of us work the way our you know great great grandfathers worked. Doesn't make any sense anymore. Why not evolve a little bit? Yeah, it's fascinating to sort of speculate on what those possible changes to the economic mm. or cultural environment may be. Maybe we'll see fewer remakes of movies that boomers first saw in their youth, for instance, or or as you say, different expectations around workplace norms or social relationships or 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 whatever. I have to come to policy and politics, though. It's something we talk about every couple of weeks. We're having this conversation on February 27th. Just last week, uh, Amanda, the British Columbian government tabled its 2024 budget. And there was something in there pretty interesting. The government effectively acknowledged kind of intergenerational inequity as it relates to healthcare spending. And in fact, committed to trying to move in the direction uh, whereby there's a more equal distribution of spending in general, but in particular thinking about some steps that can be taken so that we don't have merely a pay-as-you-go as system whereby annual revenues have to defray the cost of, of annual expenditures, but even trying to build a bit of a nest egg to pay for increasing demand on services that will inevitably come from aging demographics. Is, is that possibly a, a window into a new world in which governments are more responsive to younger cohorts, including millennials? Well, I will say I thought the BC budget was a fascinating document. Um, not everything, of course, will come to pass. But in terms of activism and and sort of innovation and policy, for better or worse, there's a lot in there. This is one example. There were other things that I'm less enamored of. Acknowledgement of the inequity, the generational inequity, I think is good. I think we can see it, of course, in other places very clearly. And most often we notice it in, in the green transition and climate change and what we're leaving to our children and their children. How we address that is an interesting concept. I, I would, I mean, I guess the only question is the devil will be in the details of how you how you pre-fund something that's barely funded on the pay-as-you-go model. So, you know, how do you create kind of room? And that's also true, I suppose, of climate change. We can barely meet our current obligations. So this notion that we will bank something because we owe it to the future, I think most of us are counting on the fact that the future will innovate and and find ways to make up for our shortcomings, which is also in some way the legacy of one generation to the next. Uh, we give them raw materials, they do better. I hope that's still going to be the case, but it was an interesting concept. And I think it's a worthy one to address, right? It's a, at least to address, acknowledge that we are leaving younger people with, with a slightly poorer starting point than we had. That's like, unfortunately just a fact in the Western world. Yeah, but I was advising a politician in looking out at this changing demographic landscape, I would probably be focusing less, Amanda, on taking things away from older voters. You know, that that that's a pretty tough road to hoe. But I I I do think that there probably is a case 
that we'll start to see politicians kind of lean in a bit more on proposals that really target millennials and, and younger generations. You know, just to sort of at the risk of spitballing a bit on our podcast, one thing I've been thinking increasingly about is whether there's a case that we ought to match the present uh, lifetime exemption on capital gains with something like a lifetime exemption on on income taxes, whereby yeah. an individual could uh, effectively have a, a basic personal exam, a lifetime basic personal exemption of say two hundred and fifty thousand dollars, which would shield income from taxation as people are entering the workforce, paying off student loans, starting to save for a, a down payment, or starting a company, or building a family, or whatever. And one of the virtues I think of that model, there, there, there are no doubt a lot of challenges, including thinking about transition and 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 when you when you start. Uh, such a policy and who's on the other side looking in and the potential risk. But one of the upsides, as it seems to me, is it would meet the test of progressivity because high income earners would effectively exhaust the exemption just faster than lower income earners. But ultimately, hmm. everyone would would benefit from something like that. And so I don't know, I'm I'm sort of optimistic that as we see changing political incentives because of the growing political influence of these demographics and the increasing presence of millennial and Gen Z Canadians inside politics itself, uh, which is the subject I, I, I wrote about this past weekend at The Hub. One wonders if we'll start to see ideas like that represented more in our politics. Yeah, I hope so. And I think that's a that's a very valuable kind of an idea. I think it, to your point, there's complexity in it, so that might keep people from uh, wanting to to really wrestle it to the ground. But it's it's achievable, and I do think that the pressure will come from this growing cohort of uh, of voters that would benefit. It is, of course, that hugely politically influential older group that would be perhaps the least enamored of that policy. Although it would benefit their own their own offspring in many cases. So you know there there are there's some incentive all around, and it just makes sense. So I'm I'm with you. I don't know what how you land on the right number. Two fifty seems high to me. I I I guarantee that any government that trotted out would start with a number that was way too low. Uh, but Somewhere, the, the concept, of course, is is the important thing. That's kind of the first principle of it, and I agree that's the kind of innovation that we may well have to get to. Hi, Hub Podcast listeners. Maybe you've seen in this very same podcast feed a new program called Hub Headlines. It features the best analysis and thinking of our writers each and every morning. It's delivered to you in a convenient audio format. In this podcast feed, all you have to do is click and download. Instead of reading Sean Spear, Howard Englund, Ginny Roth, any one of the terrific writers contributing to The Hub each daily, you can listen to them on the go. It's convenient. It's built for people like you with busy lives. If you're multitasking, if you enjoy The Hub but can't get on a screen, check out Hub Headlines. We've got you covered with the audio version of The Hub's best commentary and analysis each day. Again, you can grab this all on the same podcast feed that you are listening to this program now. Simply download each morning Hub Headlines and enjoy our best analysis and insights. Well, great conversation. We'll have to come back to this and in a subsequent conversation because I'm really fascinated in the interaction between demographics and business and culture and and politics. We we only touched on film, but no doubt this is something we can we can speak about on another one of our biweekly conversations. But what we were just talking about the potential policy implications is a good segue into our second topic, which is mm -hmm. the new pharmacare deal between the Liberals and the NDP, 
We'll apparently see draft legislation soon that outlines the details of the plan. For now, we're told that it covers diabetes medication and contraception. It's not clear how ambitious it is beyond that and how it will be implemented, including the ultimate role of the provinces. And Amanda, in your mind, does this have the potential to be a big deal or is it more likely to be tinkering on the margins? Yeah, I mean, unfortunately, so back to this notion of, you know, a set of first principles that you work from. I, I don't know that this pharmacare deal will achieve a grander vision. Ultimately, it, it will come down to how it's implemented, um, how it's accessed and what we want from it. And it feels to me as though we're going to start with an unambitious version of what it could be. The most ambitious version, of course, would be difficult. You know, and, and this isn't the first time it will occur to anybody that if we tried to do any of the many things we take for granted, but which make our country great today, it would be nearly impossible from building the Trans-Canada Highway to implementing Medicare. We just get getting kind of consensus around these big, complex ideas seems harder today. It is harder because there are just more people involved with, with rights and the ability to intervene. So this one, you know, we already heard from Alberta that it will opt out, but but thank you, we'll take the cash, which to me undermines the, the point of the thing, or at least the principle that I'd like to see at play here. I also would put my hand up and say, you know, why those two drugs and not others um, and other people will do the same. But in terms of sort of figuring out how it might look and work, I don't know about you. I mean, I'm I'm glad we're moving in this direction. It seems sense. It seems like a sensible thing to pursue. I just, uh, you know, that it will be come down to how we implement it, because that'll make a big difference in how we use it and interact with it and ultimately how it kind of shapes further policy. Yeah. NDP leader Jagmeet Singh has said that the government is committed to a single-payer model, though it's unclear whether he means, Amanda, for a narrow formulary that would sit alongside private plans or something more ambitious that ultimately might even replace private plans. Mm -hmm. If it's the latter, is there any risk for the government that Canadians might actually respond negatively to disruptions to their current insurance? I mean, there is a risk and we've seen this. I mean, it's a, there is a parallel, of course, in the effort in the U.S. to introduce a, a kind of a more single payer universal model of healthcare. When there's a system that's working for a great number of people, any disruption will feel disruptive. That's just the nature of the thing. Is it worth it? Is that an, a worthy exercise? I think so. I mean, one of the biggest friction points here will be all of the intermediaries that are already in place, functioning well, supporting a system that, as you say, works for the majority actually of Canadians at the moment. Uh, and you know, how do we how do we cross over to this other vision and is it worth it is really the question. So um, you could say, all right, well, we're just going to target those as this is now doing those Canadians that aren't currently covered. And that's a worthy endeavor. Uh, I still think there is a grander objective here of a more universal single pay model that would disrupt the system. That's hard, but it's not impossible. It just takes a little bit of clarity of intention and uh, political capital. Does this government have it? I don't know, but a government might, and it might be a worthwhile thing to pursue. Uh, I'll say two, two things in response. One that tends to agree with you, and then one that maybe slightly disagrees. Uh, on the first point, it's pretty obvious in hindsight, Amanda, that if, they, if you were conceiving of Medicare uh, again, according to the same principles, you almost certainly would include drugs. Um, mm -hmm. It's important to remember that when Medicare takes shape in the mid-1960s, Drug costs are a pretty small share of overall healthcare spending. The pharmacological revolution is yet to come. Um, right. Today, drugs represent the second largest expenditure, larger than doctors, which, of course, are part of the single payer model. And so in that sense, 
you know, I think what a lot of pharmacare advocates are essentially calling for is to fulfill the initial promise of Medicare and bring drugs, which are a major today, a major part of healthcare expenditures into the overall single payer model. I, I broadly understand that that impulse and, and even am inclined to agree with it. The, the challenge, of course, is, as you say, the transition could be quite extraordinary. I mean, just think of it this way, Amanda. Uh, presently, employer provided health and dental benefits, which uh, extend to, you know, something like 60 or 70 percent of Canadians are a tax free benefit. That's something provided for under our, our tax system. A decision was taken, incidentally, in the post-war era to make those non-taxable benefits. And of course, we saw a shift from wages to those auxiliary benefits as a result. It's just fascinating to think about if we saw the federal government start to crowd out those private plans in the form of a, a single-payer model, mm -hmm. what would happen? Would employers raise the salary for employees? Would unions you know, fight to try to essentially recoup the loss in the in, in the form of other benefits? Uh, or is there a risk that workers end up kind of worse off, including potentially having now access to fewer drugs um, than they did under their, their private plans? I think for all of those reasons, politicians have been, uh, although perhaps kind of conceptually committed to the principle of pharmacare, kind of quite reluctant to pursue it in practice. And so I, I think what is yet to be seen is the level of ambition the long-term ambition re represented in this legislation that we'll see in the in, in apparently in the coming days and weeks. I think that's actually one of the uh, most important risks. You could mitigate it. You could create right a series of regulations that um, that did uh, call employers to account for the money that they were saving. Um, however, it would be complicated and and maybe even as I say that, that unnecessarily so uh, to create kind of new new layers for business. I, I think that the obvious parallel is what happened with it's not exact, you know, it's not exact, but is what happened with pension plans and, and yes. corporations. And when corporations were kind of given the license, the social license to step back from the defined benefit pension, that really was a kind of a cradle to grave view of their employer. They did not step in with higher wages, absolutely did not. They took advantage of the vacuum and made more money. So would the same thing happen in pharmacare left to their own devices? It's 100%. I think they, that's exactly what would happen. So is that reason enough not to pursue it again? I don't. I think there might be a, a model, and maybe we're on the track, I'm not sure, but it, there might be a model where you introduce it gradually and you kind of create the framework, the supporting framework so that when the, and by the way, there are players who exist and make money off the existing frame. We should not discount the pain to them uh, of this situation. So there are lots of considerations here. I still think it's worthwhile. Uh, this might be a Gen X thing to say, but I think I'm going to keep saying that, by the way, so people remember that Gen <laughs> X is a thing. I will. I do believe, I believe in our, you know, a universal healthcare system. I think you're right that not just pharma, but dental uh, is a reasonable thing to include in, in a holistic view of health. And so if you believe in the one, then you believe in roughly in the extension of it. And I would just say to listeners and viewers who are disinclined to the proposal, maybe because they're, you know, they come from a, a, a more market oriented point of view or they're concerned about the fiscal cost or whatever. I, I understand those instincts, but I would warn them that simply being opposed to this proposal is probably not going to be a sufficient response over the the short or or medium term and, and here's why amanda the, the case right now against this uh, this proposal is something you said earlier which is the vast majority of canadians are by and large well served by the status quo as i mentioned 60 or 70 percent are getting their insurance through their employer 
another approximately 10%, perhaps more, are getting it through current public, pre-existing public plans, either because they're low income or they're seniors in most provinces. So the share of the population that really is at the risk of sliding through the cracks is, is pretty small. But, and this is a big but, I think that population is going to grow. As we see changes in labor market norms and an increasing share of the population involved in what you might describe as unconventional work, frankly, mm -hmm. work like you and I do, we're going to see, I think, a smaller and smaller share of the population covered by employer-provided plans. And in that right. sense, the cohort that is going to um, be seeking a sort of policy response to the fact that they no longer have employer-provided health and dental benefits uh, will will in invariably grow. And so if you don't like this plan, you know, that's fair enough, but I don't think it's it'll be sufficient for very long to say, well, you know, there's, there's nothing to see here. I think uh, we're going to have to see alternative proposals, like, yeah. for instance, a refundable tax credit that would enable individuals to go about purchasing their own insurance, maybe some kind of pooled model like we've seen on on pensions, as you as you mentioned, incidentally, but but I do think that the that the momentum for this type of proposal will grow because of some of the issues we started with, which is changing yeah. demographics and changing kind of workplace dynamics. I think you're right. I will just add one element you and I will agree on. I think um, that does the critics will have this as very low hanging fruit, and that is this isn't the kind of program that will win favor if it's deficit funded. Uh, it isn't really the kind of program that's suitable for deficit funding. And so, and I think we can agree that's probably how this thing is gonna be funded in the get-go. Although I did have this, uh, this sort of cynical, cynical thought this morning over my newspaper, which is, you know, the, the feds have kind of mused about how the federal government shouldn't be in the business of spending on any new roads. And that's caused obviously great consternation for many. I wondered whether that, that was like a little bit of signaling that that infrastructure fund that the provinces are waiting for clarity on may well be reduced and that there's money coming out of that and into farmer. I don't know. But I, I wonder whether there's, there's some pre-budget maneuvering around where the money goes and where it won't go. Having said that, people won't want to see a pharma care plan that's deficit funded. I think most people will be in agreement of that. Oh, just a great conversation from millennials to drugs to roads. Amanda, I want to thank you very much. And I look forward to catching up in a couple of weeks. Thanks, John. Thank you for listening to In Conversation with Amanda Lang, brought to you by The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Please do share your favorite Hub podcast with friends and family. Subscribe wherever you get your audio online and leave us a review and rating. You can also access a video version of this recording anytime on YouTube. Simply search for The Hub or The Hub Canada or visit our website at www.thehub.ca. I'm The Hub's Executive Director, Rudyard Griffiths. The host of today's program was Sean Spear, The Hub's Editor-at-Large. This episode was produced by Amal Atar Guzman. The Hub's podcast producers are Alex Glutch and David Matta. The Hub's podcasts featuring Amanda Lang are generously supported by the Linda Frum and Howard Sokolowski Charitable Foundation.